Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Dutch farmers are angry. One drove his tractor into a local legislature during protests last month. They disagree with European regulators about emissions, and the dispute may threaten Holland's long history of calm, collective negotiation. And today, Disney launches its streaming service, Disney+. Plus. It's been buying up streaming expertise and content, intending to sell subscriptions cheap. The real value for Disney will be in getting lots of customers and their data in one magical place. First up, though. Today, America's Supreme Court will begin considering whether President Donald Trump can end the Obama-era immigration program Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, better known as DACA. DACA was a landmark presidential initiative after successive presidents had struggled for decades to get bipartisan agreement on immigration reform. These are young people who study in our schools, they play in our neighborhoods, they're friends with our kids, they pledge allegiance to our flag. In 2012, the president gave up on passing legislation through Congress and announced an executive order. He created a program for young people who had been brought to the country illegally when they were under 16, allowing them to work and study. Let's be clear, this is not amnesty. This is not immunity. This is not a path to citizenship. It's not a permanent fix. Since then, the program has helped about 800,000 people often known as Dreamers, and it's been broadly popular. But it was denounced by some as presidential overreach. When Mr. Trump campaigned for office, he vowed to end it. I will immediately terminate President Obama's illegal executive order on immigration. Immediately. And nearly a year after taking office, his then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced that the program would end. Such an open-ended circumvention of immigration laws was an unconstitutional exercise of authority by the executive branch. His ruling was met with protests. Legal challenges have played out for two years, and the Supreme Court has been slow to turn to the question. Today, finally, after two years, the Supreme Court will consider whether President Trump can lawfully scrap DACA. Stephen Maisie reports on the Supreme Court for The Economist. The outcome is going to affect the lives of some uh, 660,000 people. These are students, doctors, teachers, social workers, lawyers... 
who came out of the shadows when, when DACA was created in 2012 and are currently protected from deportation and allowed to work. They have uh, graduated from high school or served in the military. Uh, these are people who have no serious criminal records. There have been no new applications for DACA since the announcement two years ago in October 2017. But thanks to the injunctions against the decision to dump DACA from several federal courts, protections already in place have continued in the meanwhile, and DACA recipients have been able to apply for renewals to their to their two-year terms. So what's the, the main legal argument as to why this rollback of DACA was, was illegal? The argument they used was that Trump's cancellation of the program was illegal because of an obscure rule in the Administrative Procedure Act. Federal agencies, including the Department of, of Homeland Security, which is the agency that issued this rule, cannot be arbitrary or capricious when they change regulations. In other words, when making a change to a regulation, especially one that affects the lives of, of so many people, an agency must show that it has reasonable cause for that change. But three federal district courts decided Trump had no good reason. The Trump administration has appealed, and although the Supreme Court delayed hearing the arguments for quite a while, they finally agreed to take the case, and that's the uh, oral argument that we'll be hearing and then the justices will think about it for a few months. They'll talk in conference. They'll draft opinions. And the ruling will come sometime in the spring. So we heard about the arguments of the challengers here. What will the administration make in the way of a counterargument? Well, the Trump administration really has two arguments, uh, and they lie in some tension with each other. Firstly, the government's lawyers will argue that the Supreme Court simply has no power to meddle in this matter, doesn't have the power to review the Department of Homeland Security's decision. Now, failing that, Mr. Trump is arguing that rescinding DACA is legal because DACA was illegal and illegally promulgated in the first place. That is that Mr. Obama bypassed Congress to effectively legislate via executive action. And that, Mr. Trump and his lawyers say, is both illegal under immigration law and unconstitutional now, this has always been a bit of a strange argument because it seems the Trump administration would have been legally within its rights to end DACA as a matter of policy. Uh, presidents come and go. They have different priorities, different policies. But staking the cancellation on the idea that DACA is illegal and was illegal from the outset, as we've seen with all these lower court decisions, uh, is a much weaker and much more fraught a way to justify that change. But if it was a weak and fraught way to justify canceling the program and he had a stronger legal option, why is it Mr. Trump chose to, to claim DACA was illegal? Ooh, that's an interesting question. Um, and it's one the government is probably asking itself right now and perhaps kicking itself over. It's possible Mr. Trump, he may have been aware that overturning it on policy grounds would have been unpopular with a lot of people. Polls have shown that Americans on both sides of the aisle are strongly in favor of protecting the dreamers. So, I mean, even President Trump at certain moments seems to have been one of those strong supporters of the principle, at least, behind DACA. In a Twitter post that he wrote just weeks before he sent Jeff Sessions, his, his first attorney general, out to announce that DACA was being canceled, 
Mr. Trump asked, does anybody really want to throw out good, educated, and accomplished young people who have jobs, some serving in the military? Really? Exclamation point. But if you look at the replies to that tweet from many of Mr. Trump's fans, you could see that for most of his hardline anti-immigration supporters, to allow DACA to continue would have been seen as an unacceptable caving to the liberals when they want immigrants deported and not supported. So you say the number of people affected by this is, is something like 660,000 people, largely young, uh, very often employed. That's a lot of the workforce to lose. What does the business community make of, of all of this? It's hard to find anyone in the business community who thinks that ending DACA is a good idea. And there are some very big hitters like Microsoft and Apple who are campaigning against rescinding DACA, saying they have hundreds of dreamers on their payroll. Apple wrote an extraordinary friend of the court brief telling the justices this is a moral issue and telling the stories of eight of the DACA recipients who work for Apple Um, That's eight of some 443 people who work at Apple whose protections would expire if the Supreme Court lets Mr. Trump end DACA. And about the court itself, under Mr. Trump, it's it's tilted more conservative. Is is there anything about that or Mr. Trump's record with the court so far that, that gives you a hint as to the administration's chances here? The hints might go in different ways. It's tough to say. I mean, generally speaking... With a five-justice conservative majority, two of whom were appointed by President Trump, a battle over presidential power would probably favor Mr. Trump. Based on just those basic points, it would seem more likely that DACA is, is headed out the door. But on the other hand, the court is not a rubber stamp for Mr. Trump. And Chief Justice John Roberts has pushed back against the president several times. Uh, So there's some evidence that if the case uh, as a matter of law seems to go against Mr. Trump, the ideological bent of the justices won't matter as much. Thank you very much for your time, Stephen. Thank you, Jason. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Farmers in the Netherlands are an industrious lot. The small country is the world's second largest agricultural exporter after America. It has the most pigs per square kilometer in Europe. Recently, though, Dutch farmers have been getting more attention for protesting. The Dutch farmers who were protesting against potential tougher environmental regulations started out by scheduling a demonstration in The Hague. They got permission to bring 75 tractors, and instead they showed up with 1,000. 
In the course of driving their tractors from all corners of the Netherlands to The Hague, they caused the largest traffic jam in the history of the country. And they then crammed into the demonstration grounds in The Hague and overwhelmed police who sort of threw up their hands and let them do whatever they wanted to. Matt Steinglass is our Europe correspondent. That was the first demonstration, October 1st. At the second demonstration, October 16th, in the run-up to that demonstration, they held other demonstrations in local provincial capitals. And the one up in Groningen in the far north got so heated that one of the tractor drivers just drove his tractor through a barrier into a busy bicycle-filled street, and another one jammed his tractor through the front doors of the legislature building and busted it open. What are these marauding tractor drivers so angry about? They're angry about nitrogen emission limits. There's a European-wide directive that countries have to limit their emissions of nitrogen, which means basically ammonia from fertilizer, which contains nitrogen, and uh, nitrogen oxides, which comes from uh, combustion engines. And the Dutch system for limiting nitrogen emissions turned out not to be adequate, so it's going to have to get tougher. The farmers feel that they have already had to submit to a whole raft of ever tougher environmental regulations. And if they have to submit to a new set of environmental regulations, it might drive them out of business. So the Dutch had their own system for limiting these emissions, but it's been found that that doesn't line up with European rules. Is that right? Yes, they had an unusually lax system where you were allowed to try experimental approaches that might reduce the amount of nitrogen in the air if they worked. And then you could count those reductions against all sorts of new expansions, like building a new barn that would have more pigs in it or more cows, without having to prove first that your new system actually did reduce the amount of nitrogen you were putting out. So how did this discrepancy come to light then? Well, a small Dutch environmentalist organization sued over the Dutch system. They took that to the European Court of Justice, which ruled that the Dutch system indeed did not meet European standards. It then went back to the Dutch highest court of appeals, which agreed. And that meant that the entire permitting system for new construction and for agriculture, which the Dutch government had based on its earlier system, was now invalid, which means that all of a sudden all these farmers are operating without valid permits and a whole lot of construction projects have to come to a halt too. Right, so on on the part of the farmers then, I mean, has lots of agricultural production been stopped? I mean, is is food running short over there? (laughs) No, the farmers haven't actually had to stop producing food, but if they had plans to, for example, bring more cows into a barn that they had already expanded, then they might not have permits to do that anymore. And in terms of food running short, the Netherlands is such an immense exporter of food, three quarters of the production in the country is for export. So there's not much chance of milk running out on the shelves of Dutch supermarkets anytime soon. And, and what about the effects more, more widely, though, um, for instance, on the construction industry you mentioned? The invalidation of the permit system is terrible for the construction industry because a lot of infrastructure projects have had to be put on hold, widening of highways and so forth, uh, and a lot of housing projects have also been put on hold, and the Netherlands desperately needs those houses. It's got a quite uh, tight housing market. Uh, They're not building enough houses for new people coming onto the market. So uh, that's driving prices higher, and people are getting quite nervous about this. Where do the people stand on average about this, not just about the housing, but about the, you know, what might appear to be a new imposition of rules? Originally, when the farmers started protesting, the overwhelming majority of Dutch were in sympathy with them, partly because farmers are always a popular cause and the Netherlands thinks of itself as a farming nation, and partly because people empathize with that sense of just being hit with too many rules by the government and wanting to protest. 
But as the protests started to get more obstreperous and break things, that mood may have shifted somewhat. The Netherlands also has a long tradition of collective negotiations and coming to a consensus on solving common problems. There's a model here called the Polder model, which people consider very important and a key part of the Dutch character. And this kind of individual sectoral angry protest is a bit unusual. People are worried that if the farmers get away with it, then everyone is going to have to start making a lot of noise. And part of the issue here is these nitrogen limits are a flat limit. If the farmers get an exception, then somebody else is going to have to have tighter limits. So what benefits the farmers is going to hurt the construction industry or it's going to hurt nature lovers. And there's no way around that. So how does this end then? How does the obstreperousness get reduced and the Dutch model of cooperation take hold again? You can see that this is definitely doing some damage to the Dutch model of cooperation. The construction sector has already staged a protest on October 30th. The Dutch teachers are striking over low pay demands and and things like that. And I think one of the issues is that the farmers have shown that it works. As far as a solution to the nitrogen emissions problem, the government has promised to study the issue. Uh, The Ministry of Agriculture is going to come back with its initial answers at the beginning of December. It's going to be tough for them to craft a proposal that infuriates everyone a little bit, but not too much. So do you get the sense that this protest mood might threaten that long history of collective action, of cooperation, of collaboration? I think it's unlikely that this specific conflict is going to do grave damage to the long Dutch tradition of collective negotiations and decisions by consensus. But it is a sign that that system and that culture is having increasing trouble in a world of increasing polarization, where you score political points and gain advantage by being louder than the person next to you. Matt, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. Disney is one of the world's most valuable brands. It's predicted to have made the eight highest-grossing films of 2019, a record for one studio. And when those films leave cinemas, every online video platform, like Netflix or Amazon, will want to host them. Today, though, Disney is launching its own streaming service. Disney Plus is what's called a subscription video-on-demand service. You can think of most cleanly as Netflix, but it's a Netflix only for Disney properties. Matthew Ball writes about media and business for The Economist. Most clearly, that's going to include Star Wars plus Pixar, as well as the entire rest of the Disney library. There are a few different things that the company has done in anticipation of today's launch. They made a number of different acquisitions. So they acquired the leading video delivery company called BamTech at about $3 billion. Subsequent to that, they spent more than $85 billion purchasing 21st Century Fox, all in an effort to further broaden the appeal of the service to expand its content, and to give customers a real reason to subscribe. And so how much will all this content cost the customers? Disney is the most successful content creator on the planet. And yet when they came out, they announced it was going to be $7 per month compared to $13 for Netflix, $15 for HBO. And then subsequent to that, they announced that actually if you did an annual plan, it wasn't going to be $7 per month, it was going to be $6 per month. And then they announced if you did a three-year subscription, it was actually going to be less than $4 per month. That's been really shocking given the quality of the content 
the enormity of the investment and the risk that they are perceived to be taking overall. So why price it that low then, especially having laid out so much money to get there? There are a few different elements there, one of which is they're entering the space at a time in which it has never been more competitive. Apple launched two weeks ago. HBO Max is going to be launching in the spring, as well as a new entrant, Quibi. NBC Universal is launching their Peacock service. And so one of the arguments here is when you're late or joining a market at peak competition, you want to lower the barrier to entry for a consumer. There's a separate element there, which is while the service is being explicitly branded as Marvel plus Pixar plus Star Wars plus National Geographic, Disney is still struggling with the fact that several of its top titles are going to be stuck on competing platforms for years. Black Panther is going to be on Netflix in the United States for several more years. The Avengers is going to be stuck there. And so to some extent, a lower price allows them to cover up for that inadequacy. People will be upset to find out not everything they thought was there is there, but they'll be able to overcome that for the price. So they've just got that price, in essence, to, to get their foot in the door in a competitive market. The more important element here is Disney is building an ecosystem. That's what they have always done. It has always been about selling toys, about driving consumers to the theme parks, about books, live shows, ice shows. And what they've always lacked despite that is a single place where they knew all of their consumers. They knew which content they liked, how much they liked it, how frequently they liked it. And so the premise for Disney Plus is it will allow Disney to, for the first time ever, have a direct connection with its audience. Their hope is they will be able to then monetize that direct connection everywhere else and to a far greater degree than ever before. Ultimately, that is going to be far more valuable than whether or not a service is $7 per month or $10 per month. And you think that that will work, that, that in, in essence, uh, tying up the whole ecosystem with the vast stream of data you get from streaming subscriptions will be, will in turn just be a money spinner for Disney? Absolutely. Disney has been doing this to enormous success for years now. And that's been despite the fact they haven't actually been able to talk to a customer directly unless they went to a theme park. That's despite the fact they've never actually known Do you like the Avengers because of Spider-Man or because of Iron Man? And so you don't need to believe that magic data is magically going to make them better at making TV or movies. But it's reasonable to conclude that having this access, having this data, will allow them to do a better job of convincing you to come to a theme park, about convincing you to buy a toy. Matthew, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.